I ultimately went to Tuskegee University for undergrad, and so that also kind of was a jaded view of what veterinarians look like. But at that point, I think I started to become more aware that the profession was not as diverse. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. One of the reasons we launched this podcast was to tell the stories of veterinarians and help those in the profession be seen and heard. Well, about two months ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Nicole Bruno about diversity and what it is like being a person of color in the profession. Dr. Bruno is the Chief of Staff at Companion Animal Hospital in Spring, Texas. Like many veterinarians, she knew at a young age that that was what she wanted to be when she grew up. But it wasn't until undergraduate studies that it became clear to her that she didn't look like most veterinarians. She is Afro-Latina. And to give you some context, 78% of the U.S. workforce is white. Yet that number increases in the veterinary medicine profession. Approximately 92% of veterinarians in the U.S. are white. These numbers are according to data from the 2017 Bureau of Labor Statistics report titled Labor Force Characteristics by Race and Ethnicity. Dr. Bruno is in that 8%. And by being on the show, she does one of the most important things we can do to address diversity, or the lack thereof, in the profession. Talk about it, acknowledge it, and open the dialogue. Here she is. So I was born in Queens, New York, and, um, you know, in a New York City is definitely um, not a rural area where I was exposed to farm animal. Um, so my first exposure was basically cats and dogs. And um, I grew up in an apartment and I wasn't even allowed to have animals. And so whenever I saw stray dogs walking the streets, I would just start crying and I wanted to feed them and take care of them. And my mom was like, we can't bring them home, but we can stop at the store and get some food. And so I literally would have a little parade of animals walking behind me um, because they knew our routine and I would feed them after school. And um, a couple of animals I was able to point off on people, but um, for the most part, that was my beginning of my my passion for animals like I knew I wanted to take care of them I did not like to see them injured um, I wanted to be a doctor um, I thought it was so cool to have a stethoscope and white coat and so I just kind of looked at options in medicine um, and thought about pediatrician but ultimately I came back to animals and decided I was going to be a veterinarian at age of 12. And why you wanted to be a veterinarian that sounds like you're just passionate about animals yeah so my mom when I told her at first she was like okay and she had told me then that she had interest in veterinary medicine but her biggest concern was um of being afraid of euthanasia and so she wanted to get me some exposure and um made some phone calls my mom's an educator so she um 
got me in touch with a cousin who knew of two veterinarians um, that were in Yonkers that were like, they would be willing to at least let me come and kind of take a tour of the practice. And so my mom drove me all the way to Yonkers, which is maybe about an hour and a half outside of New York City. And I met um, two doctors from Tuskegee University, um, Dr. Howell and Dr. Givon. And um, I was able to watch them do a surgery. I watched um, Dr. Howell in appointments and I was just fascinated. I didn't see a euthanasia, but I saw surgery. And so at least I felt comfortable being around blood. And um, I was just like, mom, this is what I want to do. Um, so my mom bought all these books on how to get into veterinary school. I learned how many vet schools were in the country, how challenging it was to get into vet school. So when I was able to start working um, and I got my working papers, I first volunteered at an animal hospital in Long Island. Um, and then I ultimately started working for them during my quest of trying to get into college. But yeah, you know, as far as getting experience, that's you know, I had to kind of look for opportunities to get that experience. Um, and so I was just lucky to find veterinarians willing to mentor me at that time. So when did you realize that there was a lack of diversity in the veterinary medicine profession? You know, it it's funny because I actually didn't think about it too much as a child, you know. Um, I knew that seeing Dr. Howell and Dr. Givon um, practicing, like they reminded me of family that, you know, I had. Um, and then when I ultimately went to work um, in Long Island, it wasn't a, you know, a black veterinarian. Um, but I, I, I guess I knew that I was different um, based on looks, but I didn't actually process that. Um, I ultimately went to Tuskegee University for undergrad. And so that also kind of was a jaded view of what veterinarians look like. But at that point, I think I started to become more aware that the profession was not as diverse um, because even in Tuskegee's vet school, you know, we, they have um, the registrar's office is just the common office. And so you can see the vet students and the undergrads in the same building during registration. And there was a lot of white people in um at tuskegee and everybody would be like oh those are the vet students and so even just at a historically black college there was still not a hundred percent african-american enrollment you know um there, so you you could see just then you know that it wasn't as diverse and then obviously as i was in undergrad you start to realize that like you are a minority in this profession um and you know it was something that made me pause with where I wanted to go to vet school at that point because I was comfortable at Tuskegee and I wanted to stay. Um, but I ultimately left and that was, you know, um, a difficult decision for me, but I think um, my education at Cornell was amazing and I met a ton of people that I, to this day, know I could call for anything. So I'm, I'm very blessed to have you know, a relationship with both schools and, and friends from both of those schools. So something about Tuskegee is, um, I remember we talked earlier, you said you were a little hesitant about going to school there because it didn't reflect what New York was like, which is like a melting pot. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me about that, how you felt about that. Well, when I um, went to, um, when it was time to apply for colleges, um, I wanted to stay in New York. I mean, most New Yorkers want to stay in New York. Um, and I 
looked around for um, colleges that had the program that I was looking for. And my uncle, who was in the Air Force um, and was part of like a Tuskegee Airmen organization through the Air Force, was like, why don't you go to Tuskegee? You want to be a vet? They have a vet school. And I was like, what? And I, when I looked at where it was, I was like, I don't want to go to Alabama. I mean, at the time my cousin Vinny came out, like, that's all I could think about. Oh. And so I, um, you know, I was like, this is, no, I do not want to go. My mom's like, you should try, you know? And so we went for a tour and again, I was just like, I don't want to be so far away from home. Um, you know, I was not wanting to be in my home, but I didn't want to be so far away. Um, and so my mom in her usual reverse psychology was just like, you know, why don't you just try it? Like just for a year, see how you like it. Um, it's good to get away from home. And, you know, if you love it, then you'll stay. And if you don't, you can always come back home. And so I said, all right, I'll give it a try. Um, and, you know, I was able to major as an animal science major, but I was hesitant because, you know, as I said, New York is a melting pot. I wanted to be around people that looked like the world um, because that's what I grew up in in elementary school. And so going to an historically black college was definitely something that I was also like, is this realistic for me? Um, but I also felt that, you know, the the opportunity of being so close to a school that had a veterinary program with it and, um, you know, just wanting to at least try for my mom, I went ahead and, and went. And I have no regrets. Tuskegee has definitely been a starting point for so much in my life, um, you know, professionally and personally. And so I um, don't regret my time there. And even when it was time to apply for vet school, like that was the only school I had planned on applying to. Um, but the time that I was applying, a lot was going on in the world. 9-11 happened and um, my parents were separating and it was a lot for me to fathom being away from home. Um, and so when it was time to apply, I said, all right, I'll add on Cornell and I'll add on Penn because those are schools that are local. And um, I got into Cornell and I found out pretty early. Um, and that made me pause again because, you know, now we're talking about going to the opposite, a predominantly white institution, Ivy League, and I felt out of my realm. You know, I felt like I couldn't do it. Um, I wanted to stay in my comfort zone of Tuskegee. And um, Cornell requires you to go to their school to visit once you've been accepted. That's the only way that you can I'll be, you know, be accepted is you have to go and tour the school. So um, I went and I remember just walking around and the campus is beautiful and so many like new tools and everything. And I'm like, wow, like I would be stupid not to come here. But I was very nervous because as I looked around the room, there was only one other person that was black. Um, and I remind you, they have a three week orientation. So I was like, you know, there could be other students in other weeks, but the week that I was in was quite the opposite of the school that I attended, you know? And so I remember Dr. Sweet, um, she's the director of student affairs, I believe at Cornell. And um, she walked up to me and she was like, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're afraid to come here. Cornell is trying to work on diversity and recruitment. Please consider us and come up here you know, and that meant a lot to me because it was like acknowledging the fear that I had, you know, of um, leaving the 
the school that I knew. Um, I also, when I went back to Tuskegee, um, some of my professors had found out that I had gotten accepted and, you know, they kind of were very encouraging of me to, to go. They said, you know, if you want to be a practitioner in New York and you want the network, you should go back to Cornell and you'll always have Tuskegee. You always have your family here. And so that, you know, with those two in mind, that kind of gave me the, you know, the, the, the bravery to at least say, all right, I'm going to go. But I was nervous even leading up to driving and starting vet school. Um, but I was very blessed. Dr. Sweet called it right. My class to date um, is the most diverse class of Cornell University's medical school or vet medical school um, to date. So I, we, I was very blessed to be around a diverse um, class, and I appreciated that. So what did that look like, diversity um, in that class? So there was, um, there was probably about 13 of us. Um, I'm biracial, um, and so I'm Hispanic and Black. And so there was about maybe six Black students, two of which were male, which is a very <laughs> uncommon thing. Um, and then um, there were... There was another biracial student, um, and then there was a few Asian and um, Hispanic veterinarians. A lot of us were from New York City, so that was fun. We used to take road trips back and forth to New York, and, um, you know, it was good to have them to lean on because when we were, you know, at times frightened about getting through classes and just whether or not we could make it, we would look at each other and we would push each other on. I mean, I literally just found a note that my best friend wrote to me that I, when I was looking for an article for this podcast, mm -hmm. that was just kind of like, I love you and we'll get through this together. And I saved wow. it and just kept it in my note, my, my loose leaf. And so, you know, that helped. It, it, and it definitely, you know, we had, my class was great. I have classmates that are not, you know, minorities that I am very close with and have helped me get through things too. But it's always something that I tr appreciated was that I had people, I had a, I had a group, you know, at Cornell that I could depend on too. So how do you think um, with a class that was diverse as yours, how do you think that that enhanced the learning experience? Um, because we, we studied together, um, we, we drew off of each other. All of us were pretty friendly and, you know, my class, um, we actually came together and they had started a minority, um, kind of a, a group at Cornell, but it hadn't gotten a lot of traction because the name was weird. And so we changed the name of it and we made it voice and it stands for veterinary students as one in color and ethnicity. Voice has since been renamed veterinarians as one inclusive community for empowerment. Dr. Lisa Greenhill, who you'll hear about later, is the national advisor for voice. And what we tried to do was bring cultural awareness to Cornell's campus. Um, we started off with um, doing food fairs, like, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month is October 15th to November 15th. And so we did a food festival and we had everybody, nobody was limited. They could bring whatever they wanted. Um, and we, they made dishes. People Googled and found recipes of dishes of Latin America and Spain. And my classmates and the, the school eventually brought in dishes and we sold it. And we um, kept the money for profit, like for whatever we wanted to do. We were trying to start, you know, a fund so that we could 
potentially bring in speakers and things like that. Um, but we did that for Hispanic Heritage Month. We did it um, to honor African American Month in February. We did like a Taste of Soul. And it was so amazing that my classmates and just the whole Cornell community would bake and bring things and then we would sell it. And that's what people started doing and they looked forward to it. Um, we tried to have talks about diversity and, um, you know, and, and I think that that helped to make me feel more comfortable being there, that it was okay to talk about differences. And ultimately, you know, so we were focused more on like the environment of being accepted into Cornell. I mean, we, there's not a lot of professors at Cornell that were um, African-American um, and even Hispanic. We had one professor that we gravitated to, um, Dr. Alvarez. And, you know, it was good to see somebody that looked like us, but, you know, there were very far and few professors for us too. So we kind of tried to have healthy dialogue about that, but, you know, that's, that's a process, you know, that's a, to find the, you know, a professor to come to Cornell to teach, you know? Mm -hmm. So we knew it was bigger than what we could do, but we just tried to do what we can to could to make the atmosphere of Cornell more comfortable for us as students. So to zoom out on diversity and uh, veterinary schools, um, there's this statistic that 75% um, of veterinary college applicants for the class of 2023 are white. And this is according to data from the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges. So how does this number, does it make you feel a certain way? What does it mean to you? It's hard. Um, it's definitely hard to imagine that, you know, I have so many friends of mine that are minorities, that we are veterinarians, but literally my, my husband and um, a friend of mine made a joke the other day. They were like, you know, I never met a black veterinarian until I met you. And <laughs> then I ne and then I had known now 20 black veterinarians because of you, because oh. I, you know, we, kind of all know each of each other, or if we don't know yeah. each other, we know of them or know the person that they know. I mean, it's a very small group. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes it sad is just that, you know, even within veterinary medicine, um, there's so many specialties and so many subsets that you can do, government, pharmaceuticals, you know, um, teaching. And so then that even like trickles, it, it, it kind of limits the um, appearance of us even more. Like when we go to conventions and conferences, you know, I know half the time I'm going to be one of few um, in the room, and it could be a room as large as 200 veterinarians in the room. Um, and that that matters, and I think that that's why there, with lack of representation, that this is what a vet could look like, People, children can't see themselves in it. Representation so matters. When I have clients, you know, since I'm a general practitioner and when I have, you know, my clients coming in with their, their um, children, I always, well, no matter what color they are, but I always just gravitate to the kids, you know, because half the time the kids are the ones that are asking like questions, you know, um, and they're cute. And I, I love to have that dialogue with them. And I've had some clients ask me, would you mentor or would you print my child's shadow? And I never hesitate. I'm always like, as long as it's a day that you know, I can make sure that everything is going to be safe for your child. Like I have no problems with them shadowing because I think that they need to see the role of a veterinarian and decide if they want it for themselves. But I think that sometimes if you don't see somebody that looks like you, you hesitate and think maybe this isn't for me, 
maybe this isn't something I can do. And I think that the other part of veterinary medicine is, is that it's such a challenge to get into vet school. Like you have to have a good resume just walking into the process, the application process. And it's not just grades, you know, it's about your experience with animals um, and different experiences, not just I worked in the same animal hospital for seven years, you know, they want to know that you've worked with other species, like, do you really want this? And, you know, I was very fortunate because of my experiences, um, I was able to get great internships or externships while I was at Tuskegee um, to help position me to have had more contact with species because as a New Yorker, all I knew was cats and dogs. And then until I went to Tuskegee, that's when I learned you know, how to work with cows and goats and had contact with pigs. And then when I did an externship at Fort Dodge, I worked with horses and chickens. And then when I did an internship at Abbott, I was able to work with lab animals. So by the time I was applying to vet school, my resume was a lot. And it, um, it, it gave me that advantage. Um, whether or not parents of, of students realize that it starts as early as you know you want to be a vet to get that exposure and that experience and there might be a lack of that or a lack of um, opportunity and so I, I try my hardest to give talks to high school students because if I could even help them as a sophomore to get a, a, a position or to be able to volunteer at an animal shelter or mentor under another vet just to get those hours of experience, that helps even now. Okay, so you graduated from Cornell, and then what was it like entering the workforce? <laughs> um, so I did an internship after I finished Cornell, um, and I worked. I came back to New York. I went. I worked in Long Island. Um, you know just entering and now having the role of doctor with this expectation that you should know everything that's scary enough. Um, you know, I did an internship and I was able to really, um, learn a lot about all the emergency type cases that come and what, how to talk to clients and how to, I guess, um, you know, manage difficult cases because that's usually what the specialty hospitals are seeing. Um, I was the only person of color in, my internship class, um, there were no specialists that were people of color. I had a couple of coworkers, um, like technicians or assistants that were, and I always would tend to gravitate to them, you know, because we would just joke about things. Um, but, you know, I think by that point, I just, it was just normal at this point. It's been normalized that, you know, you walk into a room and you're probably the only one. Um, and, I think that at this point in my career, I want to help the movement of changing that dialogue. Um, because um, the other day, my son, who's four years old, um, was talking to my cousin and he told her that he wanted to be a doctor. And I was like, oh, this is news. And so um, I was like, oh, okay, cool. What kind of doctor do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a veterinarian. And I said, because I want to make sure if this is what he wants to do, I'll never deter my son from it. But as a black man, right now, there's only 76 African-American males registered in veterinary school right now. And that's up from 49 from 15 years ago. And so what will it look like in 
15 more years when my son, if he wants to be a vet, applies for it when I see statistics as 75% of the class of 2023 is white. So as a mom and as a veterinarian, I have to play a role in changing this dialogue and this path of what veterinarians look like. You know, people are always shocked when I tell them that I'm a veterinarian. They're always like, really? Oh my God, you must love animals. It's, but it's like the initial shock is not because um, I must love animals. I mean, I think they're shocked, you know, because I don't look like what a veterinarian should look like in their eyes. And, you know, at this point, like I said, you know, I think a lot of my colleagues would probably say that we're just so used to it now and we've kind of accepted it. But I know that there's still a lot of people that want to make a difference and I would like to start helping in that capacity. So would you consider that comment, like, like this person was surprised that you're a veterinarian, would you consider that a microaggression? And it'd be good to define what a microaggression is because I feel like it's a common term in sociology, but I don't know if everyone knows what it means. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a microaggression is, quote, a comment or action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a member of a marginalized group, such as a racial minority, end quote. I mean, I think that sometimes, too, um, I try not to always look at it as a, as a race thing. It can also be gender. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll walk into a room and I can see sometimes a client pause and like turn their eyes up to look at my degree. Um, I've had people like stop me and then say like, excuse me, you're the you're the doctor. Like, even though I've walked in and been like, hey, you know, I'm Dr. Bruno and blah, 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 blah. And they'll be like, like five minutes into the, you know, the appointment will be like, you're the doctor. And, um, you know, I usually try to wear clothes because I wanted to separate myself from, you know, what my technicians and my receptionists may be dressed as, but, you know, sometimes I have to wear scrubs, you know, um, and I sometimes blend in, you know, and so I, those are little things that have come up. I've had people flat out ask me, you know, and sometimes they ask me how old I am. I mean, so that's why I said some of it, I don't know, it's just necessarily like a cultural thing. I think some of people, some people are just rude, you know, and I (laughs) had to kind of, sometimes I come up with smart answers too, to, you know, kind of tell them that that's not necessarily such an appropriate question. Um, And, but, you know, sometimes I just kind of grin and bear it and just answer them and watch for the shock factor, you know, because I do, not to toot my horn, but I look young. And and so, you know, people are usually like, oh, how long have you been a vet? You know, and that's not necessarily like a cultural thing, you know, it's more of like experience. But yeah, I guess those could be categorized as, you know, microaggressions, if that. How often do you experience anything like that? I don't feel like I get that as much now because I've been working at this current practice for three years. Um, And even when I worked at other practices, I was at my one practice for seven years. Um, You know, I think it was more stuff in the beginning. They're usually new clients to the practice um, or practice or clients that never saw me. I've worked at practices that were like nine doctors. And so, you know, if I saw a client that hadn't seen me, but I had a client flat out tell me that in New York that he did not want me to do his pet surgery. Um, 
And when I offered him other options for vets, um, he heard their names and was like, no. And I remember putting, I, I, as politely as I could, I exited the room and I went to my boss and I told him that I think he needed to go into the room and potentially be prepared to do that surgery. Um, because I didn't think that the client was going to go for any of the female doctor choices. But I, I mean, from a name, you can't tell their um, gender, but you can potentially de de um, determine their ethnicity from their last name. And those doctors that I listed were Dominguez and McGowan, and then I'm Bruno. And he was like, no. And um, ultimately, the doctor that he allowed to do um, was Corin. And so I, um, which was my boss and, you know, it, it, that bothered me. I actually did a, um, a talk to students maybe like later on that week. And I told them, you know, there were a class of, um, students in Harlem and I told them that, you know, sometimes no matter how much education you get, sometimes you're never prepared for, you know, the racism that can come your way. And the best thing you can do is just, you know, be um bigger than them you know and just it's not about you it's about them and their ignorance you know and so um at the end of the day i'm glad i had nothing to do with that case um but it was still something that was a shocking part of my career and i realized then that you know there are some clients that are going to feel that way and i'm okay with that but there's so many more clients that i help and more clients that i have kind of developed like bonds with. And I think that that's why I enjoy general practice because you can build those bonds where then it, it doesn't, I don't feel like it's color. I feel like they treat me as a valued um, person of their family. Like I give opinions on their pet's care, you know, and they trust me. So it sounds like you have a choice of how you respond to a situation like that. Exactly. I mean, and that's, I mean, some of it is also how you're raised. Like, you know, I mean, my mom was always like, just choose the high road. Don't let them see you sweat, you know, be bigger than, be bigger than them. And they can never take away your education. And that's why I, you know, I will, something I will emphasize to my children, like, you know, regardless of anything, nobody can take away your education. And so, um, you know, I try to be as professional as possible. I let them know that they always have options. And I mean, a lot of times, like I said, I don't walk into a room and automatically think that somebody feels some kind of way because of the color of my skin or, my ethnicity or anything, but I, I think that um, definitely there are times where it is questionable. Mm -hmm. What are the consequences of not having a more diverse culture of veterinary medicine, not only with race or ethnicity, but also through sexual orientation, religion, socioeconomic status? What do you think the profession is missing? when there's a lack of diversity? Oh, so much. I mean, you know, everybody has their own story. And sometimes, you know, you can easily influence somebody else with your story by changing their views, changing their mindset of how they think about things. I mean, you know, growing up in an urban city and, you know, I grew up in an apartment. My family was middle-class. Like I understood that having pets was a luxury. There were times that, you know, when it came to my, 
my own pet's medical care as a, as a kid, you know, I remember my mom stressing out about like coming up with the money to spay or, you know, um, or even treat if there was an emergency or something like that. Um, and so that matters. And if you understand that and you have that sense of like, I got through this and this is what I can offer as a, as a clinician, you can have that compassion towards your clients of all backgrounds. Um, you know, sometimes even with speaking to people, um, you know, I am half Hispanic. I am not fluent in Spanish. It's very frustrating for me, but I do understand a lot of what my clients are saying enough to be able to understand how to at least start treating their pet. And then when it comes to talking to them, I promise you, I will never have a, a hospital that does not have one person that is fluent in Spanish. That's just so important. Hospitals should have one person in their office that is fluent in Spanish because there are so many, um, you know, people of, you know, of Latin America that live here that are not able to, you know, articulate what's wrong with their pet or even understand how to treat their pet. And that is something that influences the outcome of their pet, you know, um, so there's so many, if you had people of different backgrounds, of different um, status, like orientation status, you can influence how we speak to our clients, how we practice medicine, what, we, what services we offer. Um, I pride myself that my staff is very diverse and we have a great time together. We've learned so much from each other. Um, and, it, I, and I love to come to work because of them. Um, it's a great working environment, but if you don't have if you don't even know, like if you're the color red and you don't even know what the color blue looks like because you've never met a color blue, you have no idea what you're missing out on, you know? And so I just think that it's so important for us. And, and that doesn't have to just be with veterinarians. It can be with your receptionist. It can be with your assistants, your technicians. Like we need to diversify as a, as a, as a profession. You know, and, and I think that once we start to do that, if we start hiring assistants and technicians that, um, you know, are culturally diverse, those people may want to go on and become veterinarians. And we and because they have the mentorship and they have the exposure and the experience to be able to catapult themselves into vet school and and beyond. Um, but we don't have a lot of that. Um, and then whenever I can, I I take them all under my wing. I mean, my little sister is a veterinarian. She's seven years behind me. Um, I'm, I'm very happy that one of my um, former co-workers that I wrote her recommendation letter for vet school, she's in her third year. She's going to Tuskegee for her clinical years. Um, I like, it brings me pride. I have a goddaughter that just got accepted to Tuskegee. And I'm like, if I can just help one or two or three, and then they can help, like we can continue this, but I need that number to change. There, there should not be 75% of college applicants for veterinary school that are just white. There's so many more of us. So one thing we can do to start that change is just having a conversation about it, like what we're doing now. Um, to acknowledge it, raise awareness. Do you know what else we can do? It seems just like one-on-one -on -one conversations are really impactful. Um, what do you have? Some any other ideas? I mean, I I know that there are. This is definitely, like I said, has not been a new topic. I mean, this has been going on. There's been conversations about this since probably before I even got into vet school in O2. But, and so I, I don't want to um, say that nothing is going on. There are um, conferences that are dedicated to diversity and inclusion. Um, 
there are um, like in the veterinary medical profession, like the colleges, they have their own subset of, of things. They're talking about it at the AVMA conferences. Um, but I think action is probably needed as far as, you know, potentially having programs for even high school students, which I know exist, but definitely providing them with mentorship opportunities past that scholarship too. I mean, veterinary medicine, the school is not cheap to go to. And mm -hmm. sometimes that can play a role if you are a first generation graduate um, and your parents have never had, don't even know what student loans are, or don't even want to go down that road. And you see that you could potentially graduate from vet school with $300,000 worth of debt. And the salary does not, it's going to take you a long time to pay that off. That's a deterrent, you know? So what are vet colleges prepared to offer, you know, any student that comes from a socioeconomic background, you know, how do we change that? And, that, and it comes from so many levels. What um, veterinarians, who do we choose to hire? You know, where do we get our applicants from? Do we try to create a culturally diverse um, hospital because we serve culturally diverse people? So if you have a person that potentially is you know, fluent in Spanish, you can send that person into the room and know that those clients are gonna get the most out of that appointment, but you have to care enough to make sure you hire a person that can speak fluent Spanish. And so I think that the conversations are good, but I think that what people take from it, um, I think little things at a time are helpful. Um, and that's why I said for myself, I try to change, you know, and make sure that my staff reflects the patients that I see. And we are a diverse staff. I love that. If I have a Spanish speaking client, I know who I can send in that room. Um, and I feel like with my background, I'm able to kind of talk to everybody, you know, and I think that not everybody can do that. And so maybe having more dialogue about that and starting in those points. But like we, like I said, there's so many different elements to this. There's the vet school level. They're starting from high school because you need a lot of experience. There's, you know, financial assistance through vet school. And that's not something, that's not just a, a simple answer. And so it's going to take a lot of different paths in veterinary medicine to try to come up with what they feel would be the best way to start so that every, like cohesively we can, you know, change the path of, of, or the course of veterinary medicine and what it looks like. Mm. So I just wonder if there's any like task forces or like at what levels people are coming together to develop some ideas. Um, like if someone was interested in being like, I want to play a part in um, making the profession more diverse, where would someone go? Depends on where, where you are. I mean, like as a veterinarian, um, you know, you can, there are conversations at our conferences about diversity and inclusion. Um, the AVMA conference um, that's in San Diego is supposed to have a, a topic of discussion on this. They did last year in D.C. While the AVMA convention in San Diego was canceled due to the pandemic, approximately 150 courses will be available virtually. There will be content related to well-being, diversity, and inclusion. And in the meantime, AVMA's digital education platform called Axon has some relevant courses. Almost all of these courses on Axon are free for AVMA and SAVMA members. You know, there are conferences that you can go to. Um, the vet schools themselves, some of them have started to host them. So there's mm -hmm. one 
um, the National Organization for Black Veterinarians. I think I may have messed up that title, um, but they are hosting something in Ohio State this year. Um, and so those are all opportunities um, to at least get started. But um, I think that even for me, who is kind of new to this as far as um, what has already been done, I don't want to like act like I'm the connoisseur of all of this knowledge. Like this is yeah. my opinions of things. Some, some data I have gotten from people that are in this industry. Um, Dr. Lisa Greenhill has been so paramount in, you know, diversity and inclusion in this profession since even when I was in vet school, I knew of her name. She used to work for the AVMA and now she works for the AAVMC, like the Association for Veterinary Medical Colleges. And she does a lot of talks and has some podcasts on this topic. And she, um, you know, I think will be presenting at the AVMA conference as well. But I mean, she's probably what I would say is more of the expert in this. Okay. Um, and so from what we've talked about, I just think of one of the people that really influenced you is your mom. Um, she like kept encouraging you and, uh, you know, it seems like it starts small, like just at the family level. Um, what, what would you say about your mom's involvement in your career? Wow. My mom is probably like my PR, my number one, anybody that knows me, <laughs> knows my mother. And, um, she is definitely my number one cheerleader and she has two daughters who are veterinarians and um, she, she earns just as much of a degree. She has our degrees at her house. Um, But she, um, I do think that you need support. You need support with anything, but I mean, definitely in this profession um, it is, I've been doing this for more more than half of my life, at least showing interest in this profession. And, um, my mom and my dad, you know, my dad was, he's a quiet force, but my, um, you know, they both sacrificed a lot so that we could get all of the opportunities to be able to go to college and, you know, vet school and compared to other students that are, I don't have, I mean, I have student loan debt, believe me, but compared to like that number of 300,000, I'm not there. And I'm very fortunate because I've always had supportive parents in that regard. Um, but not everybody does. And a lot of times when you have to be your own support system and you don't see anybody that at least you can reach out to that can and establish a connection to help, I think that plays a huge role in maybe why um, students don't apply to vet school. Like they, they are so close to it and they don't think I've had people actually say to me, like, I can never get into Cornell. Like I'm not even going to apply like students that I know are applying to vet school. And some of them, especially when I lived in New York, I'd be like, you have to apply to Cornell. Like that's our state school. Like you have to go there, like, or at least apply. And they're like, I'll never get in. And I'm like, if I could get into Cornell, you can get into Cornell. Like I don't, I, I definitely had the GPA, the grades and the experience, but I never, you know, looked at it like I couldn't get into Cornell because of the color of my skin. You apply, you know, um, and that's what I think sometimes when you have that doubt, if nobody's there to push you forward and say, you can do this, then you, 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 you let that fear overtake you. And, um, and I think that's with anything, but definitely in this profession, um, it can be isolating. Um, my, Goddaughter that I said um, that was accepted, 
we were taught, we were texting over the weekend and I told her, like, I was like, any question that you have, like, don't be afraid to ask me. Like, I will be very upfront and honest with you because this is your career. Like, this is what you will ultimately spend the rest of your life doing or and owing a lot of money to do it. And so you have to want to do it and you need to know what the pros and the cons are. Um, but yes, you, until this profession starts to look more culturally diverse, you will be probably one of few in a room, in a conference, in a leadership meeting, um, in the office that you work at. And that's okay because you do have support from others. We're all doing it. But I do think that I feel a personal obligation to try to do what I can in the little scope that I have to try to change that. And so I did start with my hospital and I'm hoping like by having dialogue with you that, you know, other veterinarians or this just can be a topic where other podcasts can happen for you um, and even have a discussion in state conference meetings and try to see what we can do individually in the state level to kind of help combat this. Yeah. And something really cool is um, like creating a work culture where it is diverse. Like where you're saying you're hiring people to make sure that um, it's representative and it's also like it reflects your, your clientele as well. Like that's cool that you can create a team that's diverse. Because you get, you get the blending of ideas, uh, of ideas that they have from their past experiences at other hospitals or even just how they operate in a hospital. And I've learned so much from them. I mean, I am the veterinarian, which I bring the medical knowledge, but like sometimes like how to handle things, how to talk to the clients, you know, some, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, you know, sometimes I know that I can send one of my assistants in there and that they can at least set the scene where when I walk in, it's not as emotionally, you know, high. I mean, we deal as, as veterinarians, we deal with clients that sometimes are in their worst emotional state, you know, they're losing their animal or they're, they don't know what's wrong with them or they are financially strapped and they're trying to figure out how to make ends meet and treat their animal. And, you know, sometimes it takes more than just, they look at the doctor as like the, you know, maybe I'm not going to get that compassion, but they sometimes turn to their nurses and they want that feedback. And it helps when those clients can have, feel like they have a rapport because they can be vulnerable with my assistants. Like sometimes they tell my assistants things that they don't tell me, you know, like I just lost my job. And then I'm like, Oh, and then that helps me to kind of make the appropriate things for their pet, you know, based on knowing that information. Um, So that's just, I mean, we can go all day talking about those, you know, instances, but overall I think that, you know, everybody just needs to kind of take a look at themselves and where they're at you know, what do they do? Like, are they in the private practice setting? What does my hospital look like? Does my hospital reflect what the world looks like? You know, what can I do? Do Does it mean that I look into getting more pamphlets on, um, you know, for my Spanish speaking clients to, to talk about certain disease processes? Do I hire someone that I know that can talk to them and, and train them how to, you know, talk to, to clients and, and, and ultimately be my right hand person in those scenarios? You know, what, what can I do? Um, and then, you know, when, if it's outside of it, if it's at 
Can I mentor students? Can I offer financial scholarships, you know, for a student that may want to go to vet school or tech school and help them get into that role? You know, I think it's multifactorial, but it all starts with one person. If you just all just start thinking about what you can do, then those ideas start to kind of, you can reach out to other people and, and make things happen. I think part of that is just being aware. Like that's like the first part. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, you have to understand that, like, for us, for, for people of color, like, we've been aware, like, yeah. our whole lives of what it is. And so, from that perspective, it's hard, you know, I, I think it's important to have the dialogue, but, you know, we're still trying to get to that action point, because the dialogue's been going on for some time, but this numbers are still reflective that nothing has changed. And that, I think, is what's frustrating. Um, so, yeah, talking about it, but actually... Um, I guess making the point to start doing something about it is, you know, where I think we need to be at this point if we're going to change the way veterinary medicine is progressing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, it really does start at a young age, you know, knowing that a child can become a veterinarian, even if the veterinarians that they see don't represent who they are. I think that there's the schools are doing more to kind of, you know, bring awareness to just veterinary medicine as it is. I know Cornell does like an open house and, um, you know, some other, um, they have, I used to work with Cornell cooperative extension and they did a program in Long Island for high school students that wanted to be vets that actually exposed them to topics of conversation, like on how to get to vet school. So that was my presentation, but they also would take them out to the, to the farm and have them work with, you know, farm animals and they got credit for it. They had to do an externship day at a vet hospital. And so just even exposing them. I mean, I think exposure is necessary because you want to know that you want to do this. I mean, sometimes I've had, I've had classmates, you know, that I went to college with that we were in animal science. We were supposed to all be vets and we got to like third year, like our junior year. And they're like, this isn't for me. Like, I don't want to euthanize an animal. Like, I'm just going to go be a scientist. And that's what one of my friends did. You know, one went into corporate America, but it's like, you have to get that exposure to know whether you like it or not. I mean, because being a veterinarian is, it's not just playing with fuzzy animals, you know, it's so much more than that. And, you know, as a child, and that's what they see, and they think that that's what it is. But I do think the more we can expose them, that's what actually will start seeing more people interested or not interested. And then that's also a good thing too, for them at least. Um, but for the profession itself, you know, um, going into schools and in, in, you know, urban environments, um, trying to have exposure, like just career days are helpful. Anytime a friend of mine asks me to do career day, if I can do it with my schedule, I do it. I have PowerPoint presentations already set for kids and even high school kids. Um, I try to take um, props, you know, that I can to, to kind of show them. Um, but yeah, the more you can show them different avenues of it, the, the more you can at least keep their interest. And, you know, I think have if they can't find that mentor at home to help them, then if they can find that mentorship outside of it, then they can keep it up. And I tell people, like, even if you decide you want to be a human doc, I have tons of friends that are doctors, you know, they're human doctors. And so even if I can be the, the, the liaison between you and meeting that person, I'm fine with doing that too. I just want to make sure that people, that children of color see more than, you know, that they see that this is an option for them. Any closing remarks or anything you didn't feel like you had a 
chance to say about your story or uh, diversity in general that you feel like people should hear? Mm -hmm. I, this is my story, and this is, I guess, I, I, I struggled with even talking about certain things because I don't want to, you know, come across as if work is not being done and that there's not people because there are plenty of people that are trying to change what this profession looks like. I just realized recently that, you know, I want to play more of a role in helping to their cause as well. Um, and so... You know, I think that just having this dialogue of just, you know, my story is my story. It's not everybody's story. Um, and some of their stories may be worse. And I think that that's something that if they're willing to share their story, it may be different from mine. They may have had more microaggressions than I've had. Um, but I still think that regardless, we all have a role to play in how this profession will continue to progress um, if we don't start now. Um, and I'm grateful that, you know, even from my corporation, when I brought this topic up internally, you know, my, my boss was like, I think you should do a podcast on it. I mean, he was very supportive of the dialogue and he said, I don't know anything about this, but I think that this is an important topic. And I think having people that recognize that even yourself, you know, when we talked before this podcast, that matters. And so the more we can have those dialogues and reach people that maybe they don't even know that it's a problem. But the, the issue is, is like for us, for people of color, this is our, this is what we deal with every day. Like, you know, and so not, not every day has a, a, um, a story, yeah. but it's still something that we're very conscious about, you know, in our day-to-day -day practice. Um, and when we go to conferences and, you know, in leadership meetings, like I realized that like, I have to do what I can to be great, but I also need to help somebody else be get to this point too. And, you know, I'm trying to get people that want to be vets that truly want to be vets to be vets, but also propel them in roles where they can make a difference too. Um, and so I'm hoping that this is a start <laughs> and maybe if we ever meet again, then maybe I'll even know more, or maybe there'll be some numbers that show improvement. Um, but if my son wants to be a vet, it's got to look different than what it looks like now. That was Dr. Nicole Bruno from Companion Animal Hospital. She is hesitant about her son becoming a veterinarian because she told me it can be an isolating experience being a person of color in the profession. But she hopes that conversations like the one we just had can make way toward diversifying the veterinary profession. For ideas about taking action to make the profession more diverse, one person to turn to is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. Dr. Bruno mentioned her. Dr. Greenhill was a guest on the 15th episode of Beyond the Stethoscope, a podcast for veterinarians and healthcare providers. Look it up. Just for some background, Dr. Greenhill works at the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges as the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity. Now here are some takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Bruno. If you have Spanish-speaking clients, place Spanish pamphlets in your clinic. If you are the one who hires, consider hiring staff who represent your respective clientele. She also said that lack of diversity has been normalized, but it doesn't have to be. We don't have to accept that it's okay to only see one or two veterinarians of color at a conference. And not only that, 
children of color, like her son, don't have to accept this social normalization either. She said it's important for children of color to see themselves represented in the profession and for them to believe that becoming a veterinarian is an option and achievable. For now, I hope you enjoyed hearing Dr. Bruno's story. On the next episode of Veterinary Vitals, you'll hear from a veterinarian who made a major change in the middle of his career. And running a practice, uh, dealing with all of the elements of business as well as medicine, just, again, burned me out where I was at the point where I really wanted to find a different avenue. That was Dr. Tom Sidwa. Public health was the avenue he ended up choosing and he stuck with it for the past 26 years. He retired in January from his position as the state public health veterinarian and manager of the Zoonosis Control Branch at the Texas Department of State Health Services. Tune in to hear how he made the transition from private practice to public health, the challenges of doing so, and what retirement, another career transition, is looking like for him. For now, please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Mm-hmm.